Philippians 1, we'll read from verse 12 down through verse 19, 18, verse 18. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the, for, for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. And we'll stop there. This end of the sentence. And the end of that thought. Let's pray. Father, we are glad that Jesus saves. And God, for every child of God here, we're glad that you saved me. Who but you, Father, through Christ, could take a rebel, hard-hearted and full of self, and transform them into a person who, though presently imperfect, does love Jesus and does want holiness and does want to put to death sin. God, we pray that um, as you have, in the words of Paul in this first chapter begun a good work God we look forward to your completing it and God we thank you for rescuing us and taking us from the camp of darkness and putting us into the camp of your own dear son the kingdom of your own son Father we pray and ask that you would help us this evening as we look at your word to not look at it as optional or even as just mere instruction like a the instructions that come with a package to be put together but God is words of life and vital to us God help us to see it as that which you have given to us words from a king to be obeyed by your subjects and God we pray that you would help us to know the same joy that Paul knew, even in a prison cell. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul is writing to this church from a prison cell, and he wants them to know the joy that he knows. And it is important to remember that he writes from a prison cell. It's one thing to say, you know, like... I'm, I'm on vacation on an island retreat, you know, kind of thing or, or wherever vacation is for you and everything's going perfect and it's so wonderful. I wish you knew what I knew. It's another to say I have endured hardship. I've endured affliction and trials and I've been imprisoned now for a long time 
for preaching the gospel, and I'm chained to this Roman soldier 24 hours a day. I have no privacy, no solitude. You know, this is my life right now, and I rejoice. And not only that, those kinds of circumstances, but people, even brothers, are talking badly about me, hoping to do me harm. And I rejoice. And so it's from that place that Paul writes to the Philippians and to us to express that we can know joy in Christ even in hard, hard times. This evening, we return to uh, the chapter, first chapter of Philippians. We looked Sunday morning at verses 12 through 14, which was just a part really of, of this thought, this paragraph that he's writing. And in it, he expressed that his circumstances, verse 12, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Or my circumstances, which is everything that's happened to him to bring him to this place where he is now in prison. Two years in Caesarea. He'll spend two years in Rome. At this point, he's still in Rome and he's waiting to hear whether Nero will free him, kill him or what. My circumstances, all of this, have not turned out like you might expect it hasn't resulted in me personally responding like you might expect, but rather the progress of the gospel. It's actually been good. Not that prison's good, not that you know being chained to a guard is good, but the gospel has progressed, and that is good, and that's part of why he says in verse 18, I rejoice. Now, those are those kinds of circumstances that he's dealing with. But then in verse 15 and following, he picks up this idea of how people are responding in Rome. He mentioned it in verse 14 when he said, Most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Hearing that Paul's in prison, it's not just that he's in prison, but how he's responding in prison. And seeing that the Praetorian Guard has come to know that Paul is a prisoner in the cause of Christ. They recognize this. And so much of Rome has come to recognize this. He, he says this in verse 13. My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. This is to much of Rome. If you understand that, if you know who Paul is, and that he's a prisoner in Rome, you've come to understand Paul is there because of Christ. People aren't confused about that, thinking he's protesting his innocence, but come on, you know, every convict says he's guilty, he's innocent, right? That kind of idea. It's not, it's not that. If you know that Paul is in prison, you have a pretty good idea. Paul's there because of the gospel. That's the reputation that he's gained because of the way he's responded and the guards watching him day and night and seeing how he responds. And also because while he is, he's chained to a guard and he, he's a prisoner, he's a prisoner in his own rented quarters and people are allowed to come to him. And so crowds have come to hear him and he's had the opportunity to preach to them. And over this time, they've seen and observed him, they've heard him and they understand he is innocent. He is here because of Christ. So, seeing that, the brethren, those who are believers, have been encouraged or they, they've been made bold to speak the word of God without fear. Now, in verses 15 through 18, 
he further develops this and he explains to us that within that group of brethren, there's actually two groups. There's two groups and they preach from two different motives. And we'll look at that and then see how he responds to that. So the two groups and their motives. Again, verse 15, he says, Some, to be sure, some of who or what? Well, some of those from verse 14. Some of those brethren who've been encouraged, who speak now without fear. Some of them preach Christ even from envy and strife. There's one group. But some also from goodwill, second group. Verses 15 through 18 give us information about both of these groups, their motives, and what they're trying to accomplish. Let's begin with those who preach from envy and strife. Who are these people? Well, once again, they are part of that group in verse 14. And I keep saying this because they are part of that group that he calls brothers. And it's almost as if he anticipates the question, Paul, are you sure? Because in verse 15 he says, to be sure. (laughs) Some, to be sure, (laughs) are preaching Christ from envy and strife. Some of those brothers. Whatever else Paul is talking about here, he's not talking about false preachers with a false message. He does not call them sheep in wolves' clothing. He does not identify them as, as mere professors who don't know God. So shockingly, here are brothers who preach Christ from envy and strife. And it is shocking. Envy and strife are among those characteristics that so often show up in lists that Paul gives us of wickedness. Here here, here are the characteristics of a life. It's a life of wickedness. So, for instance, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, you know, you, you have those fruits of the Spirit, but you also have that list of the works of the flesh or the deeds of the flesh. And he says among them are idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And those kinds of characteristics are showing up in these preachers who are preaching Christ out of strife and envy. In Romans chapter 1, they are listed among those kinds of characteristics that are uh, characteristic of a depraved mind. Verse 28 and 29 Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul talks about how false teachers often have these kinds of motives. Again, he's not talking about these people in Philippians 1 as being false teachers. And yet this is characteristic of false teachers. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3 and 4. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. 
But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. Envy is characteristic of people who are not born again. People who, according to Titus 3.3, are enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. And also in Titus 3 verse 11, a person who persists in stirring up strife is to be avoided as one who is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. It's kind of shocking that on one hand, he speaks of them as being characterized like this with, with language that is wicked. And at the same time, he says, there are these brothers who preach from these kind of motives. In verse 18 of Philippians 1, he talks about how they speak in pretense. This is over against those who proclaim Christ in truth. Not truth of doctrine, but truth in motives. These envious men act as if their motives are pure, but really their preaching is a pretense. It's hypocrisy. They're putting forth a front as far as their motives go, but behind that there's something else. In verse 17, Paul says they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. The word selfish ambition, we've mentioned before when we're looking at 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul spoke there of, of having his ambition to please Christ. And in the New Testament, there are two different words translated ambition. And in the New American Standard, they are um, consistently differentiated between ambition and selfish ambition. And so there's kind of a godly ambition that Paul speaks of. And then there's that that's not godly ambition. It's selfish. And this word that, that's translated selfish ambition, it comes from a word that originally meant day laborer. Here's a person who, you know, he gets a job for the day and tomorrow it may be a different job. The next day, man, I have a job and he's, you know, he, he works for the day. And there's nothing wrong with that in itself. But from that idea, it developed into the idea of here's a person, kind of the worst part of that maybe, here's a person who doesn't care about the job because he's not going to be here tomorrow. And so he's not looking out for the employer and his interest. He's there for the day to get paid. Where if you were there as a career, you might be more invested in whatever the job is because you've got to be there tomorrow and next year. From that... It continued to develop into the idea of a person who is a mercenary, who does anything for a buck. Not really concerned about ethics as long as I make a paycheck. And so Paul applies this word to these men at this time. Here's a, a worthless self-seeking. Perhaps he thinks of these men later when he turns his attention back to the Philippians and says in chapter 2 and verse 3, 
Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now, Paul's not necessarily saying that these men are money hungry. They could be power hungry. They could be hungry for attention. According to verse 15, again, they're envious. Envious of who or what? Well, Paul doesn't spell it out exactly, but look at what they hope to accomplish in verse 17. They, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So, it appears here they're envious of Paul in some way. Maybe, and this is a bit of speculation because he doesn't he didn't spell it out further than that, but maybe here are some guys who are already in Rome. There's already a church in Rome. Maybe they have some reputation. And then Paul shows up. In jail, yeah, but everyone starts talking about Paul. And maybe they become envious of that. And so they preach, but in their preaching, they're hoping to do him harm rather than to do him good. Maybe it's snide remarks. Maybe they're just hoping that by, since he's in jail for the cause of Christ, we're going to bandy the cause of Christ. You know, we're going to yell it louder, hopefully that it will bring pressure to bear on him. I don't know. But from envy and selfish ambition, they hope to cause him distress or affliction. Now, humanly speaking, who thinks Paul would, at this point, be stress-free? There's so much in his life to cause stress. And while his response is rejoicing, that's not automatic. It's not like he's, you know, a robot. He has to fight for that joy every day like anyone else has to fight for joy. But these men, these men are so envious, so selfishly ambitious, they preach Christ hoping to cause further distress to Paul as though there's not enough distress already or reason for distress. Someone has said it's, it's like the, the, the chain that he wears is already, you know, uh, chafing. They hope to add chafing to his heart by stirring things up and trying to make life more difficult for him. What twisted thinking. Well, thankfully, they were not the only group in Rome. There were those who preached from selfish ambition or from envy and strife but in verse 15 he also says there were those who preach from goodwill goodwill towards Paul they see and understand that God is at work in him they understand that so much of Rome including so many in the palace are aware that Paul's imprisonment in the cause of Christ is just that that's why he's there and seeing the good that's being done even though Paul is in chains, 
They're bold themselves to preach. And while the envious are unhappy with their role and act out of selfish ambition to try to tear down Paul and build themselves up, these who preach out of goodwill are content not only in what they see God doing in Paul, but content with how God is using them, content in their role, whatever it is. And so goodwill kind of encapsulate that, encapsulates that idea. They're, they're happy with what they see God doing in Paul. They're happy with however God chooses to use them, and they're full of goodwill. In verse 17, he spoke of the, the envious as preaching from selfish ambition, but now here, those who are preaching from goodwill are also described as having pure motives. If you're reading the English Standard Version or New King James, it uses the word sincere, like we saw back in verse 10, where Paul prays that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless. And that's in the New American Standard, sincere. But uh, as we mentioned back then, which I can't remember when that was now, um, it is the idea of purity or of being unmixed, unalloyed. It's the idea that we see in 2 Corinthians 2.17 where Paul expresses that we're not like many peddling the word of God. And there the idea of the peddling was of, of watering down wine. We're not... You know, using false measurements. We're not watering things down and trying to um, make it go further, make a bigger profit for ourselves. All those kinds of mixed ideas that would go along with that. But as from sincerity, he says, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God with unmixed motives, with, you know, we're giving you the truth, unvarnished. So not only purity of motive but in eight, in verse 18 he says that they speak in truth where the the other group spoke with pretense here there's no pretense there's no hypocrisy in verse 16 he says they preach out of love and here's the root really behind their preaching and their goodwill toward Paul Love to Christ and love to Paul. They love the Lord. They see God at work through Paul. They love Paul, even if he's in jail. Even if, you know, Rome clamps down on Christianity. They're not backing off and they're not being quiet and they're not distancing themselves from Paul, trying to stay out of trouble themselves. They love him. They love the Lord. They preach with courage. But the fact that they're preaching out of love does kind of imply something about the other group, doesn't it? If what motivated and characterized the group that, that preaches because of goodwill, if what motivates them is love, then what do we see characterizing the other group? Well, it's a lack of love. They're not being loving toward the Lord. They're not being loving toward Paul. We hope to cause him distress. Even though they're brothers, even though they're preaching Christ, 
they hope to cause him distress. What a lack of love. And with that in mind, I want to point you right back to 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Two groups of brothers, but in the matter of Paul's imprisonment, one is characterized by love, the other is not. And as Paul looks at the situation in the church at Rome and considers the situation at Philippi, could this be one reason that motivates him to pray for them as he does? This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Of the envious group, he said that they preached this way, thinking to cause me distress. But in verse 16, of these who preach out of love, he says they do it knowing I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The word appointed is one that in the New Testament is often used to express the idea of being destined. Luke chapter 2, verse 34 Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. He's appointed for this. He's destined for this. God is, has brought him to this moment. In 1 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, Paul, speaking of, of his suffering, he writes to the Thessalonian church, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we've been destined for this. We've been appointed for this. It was uh, appointed was a, a military term. It was used of, of assigning a soldier to a, a, a duty or a post. You can imagine like having guard duty and you're assigned to this post and you don't leave the post until you're relieved. Paul is on duty. His assignment is to defend the gospel. And that assignment was a greater assignment than the one given to the Roman soldier who's chained to him. I've been appointed to this, to the defense of the gospel. And these brothers know this and they love this about him. Seeing that he's the prisoner of Christ, appointed to this, and that God's using him this way, from love they boldly proclaim Christ. So the two groups at work, and while they operate from different motives, hoping to achieve very different results, Paul is clear they preach one message. Remember the sum of those who are envious and the sum of those who preach from goodwill are both a part of the group described in verse 14. Those brothers who have courage now to preach the word of God without fear. 
The description of that group is not just that they are emboldened by Paul's chains, but that they are emboldened to speak the word of God. And if we're unclear about that or if we're doubtful that these brothers who are causing trouble are preaching Christ faithfully, Paul reiterates it. Verse 15, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. I mean, he says it again and again. They are preaching Christ. These men were acting shamefully, but they were not heretics. They're not false teachers. Paul calls them brothers. They preach Christ. Paul doesn't speak that way about false teachers. False motives do not alone make a false teacher. False doctrine makes a false teacher. Listen to how Paul describes the false teachers in Philippians chapter 3. Verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. To the Galatians, he wrote in chapter 1 verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he's to be accursed. Paul's not saying these men are to be accursed because they're not preaching a different gospel. The problem is not their message, it's their motive. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, he said, if anyone does not love the Lord, he's to be accursed. Paul doesn't shy away from calling a false teacher a false teacher or pronouncing judgment upon those who teach falsely. But he does not do that here because these men, though they have sinful motives, are not false teachers. So, two groups, one message, and from Paul, one response. This group that preached from sinful motives desired to cause further distress for Paul in his imprisonment. They wanted to add to his circumstances. And this is kind of an internal problem because it's inside the church. Here are these brothers. So you have all these external circumstances. Now there's this internal problem. What will you do with that, Paul? Paul looks at the situation And here is his assessment. Verse 14, they speak the word of God without fear. Verse 15, they preach Christ. Verse 17, they proclaim Christ. Verse 18, Christ is proclaimed. No matter the motive, no matter whether they love me or hate me, no matter whether they have goodwill toward me or wish me harm, either way, Christ is proclaimed. Whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And since Paul himself is the prisoner of Christ, how should he respond? 
In verse 18, he says it so succinctly. And in this, I rejoice. Well, that's, I believe, the content of those verses. Let's look at some application. First, I want to reiterate, believer, and I am speaking to believers, neither circumstances nor people can rob you of joy if your heart is set on Christ. That doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's automatic. As we set our heart on Christ, we can know joy in the hardest of circumstances and with the most difficult of people. We are commanded to rejoice. James 1-2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. We're instructed to rejoice. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, blessed are you when people insult you. And persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Philippians 4.4 Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say rejoice. But as we saw Sunday, we're not just commanded it. We are also modeled it by Paul. As he expresses joy from hard circumstances and before difficult people. Not just the Roman soldier. Who surely at some, some of them were difficult you would imagine. But also these very brothers who wish him harm. I rejoice. Christ is preached. <clears throat> And then he can say to us, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And we look away from Paul to the Lord Jesus and fix our eyes on him, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we look at him, and in Christ, what do we see? He deals with difficult circumstances and difficult people who want to kill him for the joy. A second thing, motives. A few things here. Motives. This passage, I think, emphasizes the fact that poor motives are not heresy. They're sinful, but they're not heresy. And we want to be careful about calling heresy what isn't heresy. That's a pretty big charge. But having sinful motives is not in and of itself heresy, and it's not in and of itself, it does not make you a false teacher. It's false doctrine that makes a false teacher. So we want to be discerning 
And again, reason for the prayer that Paul prays, you know, make our, our love to abound in real knowledge and all discernment so that we can distinguish the things that differ. So we can approve what's excellent. We need to know the difference in those things. And along with that, understanding that poor motive is not a heresy, there's this second thing, and that is this. God can use those who have poor motives. I mean, honestly, who, whose motives are pure, perfect, other than the Lord Jesus? Are we ever absolutely 100% perfect in our motives? And if God has to wait until our motives are perfect, will He ever use anybody? But we also see here, God can use those who have terrible motives. I mean, here are guys who love the Lord. They're not acting very loving at the moment, but they're brothers. As far as Paul can tell, they're born from above. And yet they wish him harm. They preach hoping to cause him distress. And if God's not using that, then why would he be rejoicing? But they proclaim Christ. And Paul is convinced that the proclamation of Christ, even from those with wretched motives, is praiseworthy. Not praising them, but praising God. And so I rejoice. John MacArthur said that the truth is more powerful than the package it comes in. While ideally there's a life that fits the message. And you will answer, I will answer for a life that conforms to the message. God can use the message with a life that doesn't match very well. Maybe what's, what Paul saw in those men, other people didn't see. They hear the message preached. They hear the gospel. They don't see the motive. And certainly God can use that. John Eady, an old commentator, said, The power lies in the gospel, not the gospeler. <laughs> it lies in the gospel. It's not the person, it's the gospel. And Paul's rejoicing because the gospel is being preached, even if it is from poor gospelers. It reminds me a bit of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Now he spoke of that in the context of the afflictions that he was enduring. They demonstrated his weakness. But the power is what it is. And the earthen vessels are what they are. And the earthen vessels are sinful. And we are in need of redemption. We're sinful. And so even with mixed motives, sometimes wretched motives, the gospel power shines forth and God is able to use imperfect vessels with imperfect motives 
to bring forth the gospel and to do the work of redemption. And so when we see the work of God going forward, we should rejoice. Even if everything about it isn't exactly as we might want it to be. Even if we suspect the motives of the person who's trumpeting the gospel. One more thing about motives, though, and that's this. Motives are important. Motives are important. God does not just look at our deeds. He also looks at our hearts. And He knows them both. We are open and laid bare before Him. There are no hidden motives before Him. The people hearing these men may not all have been aware of their motives, but God knew them. And He knew them better than Paul knew them. And we will answer for our motives. So, when these men became aware of their motives, they are commanded to repent. They must repent. It's wickedness. So, people, circumstances can't rob the believer of joy when our heart is set on Christ. Motives. And third, what wicked hearts we have. Is it any wonder that the Bible says the heart is more deceitful than all else? Desperately wicked. Who can understand it? It's so desperately wicked that it can take up something glorious like the gospel and proclaim it on one hand as the only hope for sinners while clinging to sin like envy and strife and selfish ambition. Our hearts are by nature so wicked that we can proclaim the love of God while being unloving. We can tell others of the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ while hoping for the downfall of another who loves Jesus. Now, do you think that you are immune from such thoughts, such motives? I'm not. And it's all the more reason to join Paul in praying. God, make my love to abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Paul sets before us here an ideal. Here is what a church should look like. When they're living to the glory and praise of God. If Christ is our life. Then we want what he wants. And we rejoice when his purposes are accomplished. Even if it means personal discomfort. Even if it means attacks. Paul knew both of those things. Yet he rejoices. And he's encouraging the Philippian church. And as God's preserved it. He's encouraging us. Set our hearts on Him. To consider others as more important than ourselves. 
to see that this work that's begun is God's work and He will complete it. And He's given us the resources to live upon Him. And He prays for us. And even in the prayer, He tells us what kind of equipping we need and instructs us how to call to God for that equipping. And when a group of people live together in pursuit of such a shared goal, what harmony ought to exist among them? I mean, if we're, all, if we're all more concerned about the love of Christ and the gospel of Christ and each other than we are ourselves, it's a recipe for unity. It's a recipe for harmony. It's the kind of thing that ought to make people looking on wonder about the hope that you have. But Paul's not only speaking to a church and what a church should look like. He's also speaking to individuals and what the individual Christian should look like and what a Christian home should look like. Because the church is made up of individuals. Individuals all bought by the blood of the Lamb. Well, Paul wanted the Philippians to know the joy that he knew. He wants us to know that. Do you know that kind of joy? I pray you do. Join me in prayer, please. Father, Father, we are little children and so often stumbling, so often wondering. God, we pray that you would come along and, as it were, take us by the hand. Lead us again to look upon Christ and find Him to be our all in all. God, make our hearts to rejoice in Him. To find in Him a sweetness and a joy that excels all others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.